The idea is as old as human conflict. Even the best plans collapse on contact with the enemy. So how should U.S. military forces plan for a future that's nothing but variables? Two long-term military scholars ponder this idea in a new book. Joining me with highlights, authors and visiting professors at Johns Hopkins University, first Dr. Nora Bensahel. Dr. Bensahel, good to have you back. Thank you so much. And retired Army Lieutenant General Dave Barno. Dave, good to have you back. Great to be here. All right, so tell us what you looked at in this book. Is this all about General Joffrey of Latter-day Plan 27s, or what is it you're trying to tell military planners here? Dave? Basically, we make the point, as former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates likes to say, the U.S. has a perfect track record of predicting the next war, at least since Vietnam. We've never once gotten it right. And so militaries plan, and they invest resources into developing capabilities, and they train officers and develop them and educate them over a career. But they're making their best guess about a future that history has shown us will always be wrong. And so our argument is that militaries fundamentally have to be adaptable. They have to make plans, they have to prepare, but those preparations are never enough. And what really counts is their ability to adapt when the war happens, and that's going to become more and more difficult in the future. And nor does that mean that they shouldn't bother planning or should planning take a different form? No, of course they have to plan. You have to do that despite the fact that you know you're not going to be right. What concerns us the most is that the challenge of adaptation is growing, especially given the trends that we're seeing in the world right now, the increased pace of technological advancement, the increasing strategic uncertainty around the world, and really questions about what the U.S. role is going to be. The U.S. military has to prepare for so many different contingencies in so many different areas that it's going to find itself having to adapt to circumstances it may never have expected. So adaptation is always a challenge for militaries, but we are particularly concerned that the U.S. military may not be adaptable enough for the challenges that it faces in the future. And that adaptability really has to happen fast, I guess, nowadays. I mentioned Joseph Joffrey and his Plan 27. As I recall from my history courses, that he was relieved of command by 1916 in World War I. So he had two years to realize his planning didn't work out very well. And then they had two more years to finally win the war on the Allied side. But with cybersecurity and pulse weapons and so forth, it could be over in a matter of hours, I guess. Is that part of the problem of adaptability in the modern age, Dave? Well, I do think we're seeing the prospects of decision-making and command and control and rapid shocks on the battlefield coming at us at a speed we've never seen before. And now they're accelerated by artificial intelligence and eventually autonomy. And so we may be moving beyond the realm of human beings being able to make all the decisions on timelines that we have grown used to in the past. So this is a huge challenge for the military in thinking about war in the future. Not only are they going to have to adapt to rapid change out there, but they may have to do it over and over again on a cycle that's beyond what human capabilities may even be able to accomplish. Because the DOD has been investing in artificial intelligence, we don't know exactly what they're coming up with, but there's a lot of money being thrown at it. Is your sense that this is the kind of thing they're throwing it at, as opposed to purely a tactical type of uh, capability? Well, you need to invest in those advanced technologies. You know, we write about this in the book, that the coming age of artificial intelligence, robotics, hypersonics, and all sorts of technologies that we don't even know about today because they have yet to be discovered, those are all going to transform how wars are fought and the means that they are fought with. But that brings up unknown challenges, too, because we don't have a lot of track record on which to draw lessons for the future. We now have two entirely new domains of warfare for generations 
generations, it was just land and sea where people fought. Over a century ago, we added air, but today we have outer space and cyberspace. And though human activity has been occurring in those domains for decades, they haven't really been the sites of warfare yet. And so the next war, whatever it involves, is almost certainly going to involve challenges, both in terms of threats to our space assets, which underpin a tremendous amount of military activity, command and control, but also civilian life. GPS is just one very central example of that but also in cyberspace. And that gives U.S. adversaries the ability to reach out and touch the U.S. homeland in a way that they've never been able to do before without going through our massive conventional forces. And so those are going to be new challenges, require new thinking about the types of wars we're in and the types of conflicts without really any historical guide to draw on. We're speaking with Dr. Nora Bensahel and retired Army Lieutenant General David Barno, authors of Adaptation Under Fire, just out now. And do you get the sense that both military leadership, which has to understand this, and really the political leadership needs to understand this also, because ultimately they're in control of the military. What's your sense of how well people are onto this concept? I think we're probably disadvantaged by the fact we have been so successful as U.S. military over really decades. The last 20 years of irregular warfare have been inconclusive at best, and some would argue that that is in a different category. But the reality is that the U.S. military has been the most dominant, most respected, most capable military in the world probably since certainly the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. And so I think our political leadership and our military leadership have been lulled into a sense of security that, you know, this is the best military in the history of the world, I sometimes hear, which is a an overstatement at best, but if you believe that you are undefeatable, then you will not take the challenges that we're presenting in this book about what this next war is going to look like and how big a shift you will have to make in order to be successful in that war in the opening days and weeks. And I think we're at some risk of hubris from our past track record. And at the time when many new weapons platforms are under development, there's talk about a, you know, there's a new bomber that's at some stage of development. There's a sixth generation fighter. There's a whole raft of types of new naval weapons that are just about to be designed and launched for the long term. So it seems like those programs would have to be readily and quickly adapted to a new form of thinking, lest they get saddled with yesteryear's weapons with today's problems. Yeah, and that problem, I think, is already underway, that we seem to be perfecting the technologies that we've used successfully in the past and may not be paying enough attention to the leap-ahead technologies that will characterize the future of warfare. The other problem with that is that all of the weapon systems that you mentioned, even if they end up being the right ones for our future conflict, they're enormously expensive. And so investing in some of the capabilities that are more adaptable, that are multipurpose, that in the coming environment are cheaper and therefore expendable, you know, swarms of drones may cost a lot of money altogether, but any individual drone can be taken out without a huge cost to it. The fact that the future environment is likely to be so lethal means we need to be thinking about new ways of war fighting and new technologies and tactics in that, and our overinvestment in some of the legacy systems of the past may prevent us from doing that. And is another issue that the technologies that will be needed for this type of adaptation and adaptability are pretty much commodities that get into the open source community that China, Russia, Iran, and pretty much anyone else that wants to get their hands on a lot of the software can do so. And so it's a matter of how smartly you apply it than it is of the power of the tool itself. Is that an issue? I think that's true in terms of a much more broad access to 
highly advanced technologies. That's certainly the case with China. And this is the first time the United States is going to have to encounter an adversary who has a technological capability and access and reach that may be as good as or better than our own. But I think there's a human dimension to that as well. And that's one of the things we emphasize in the book is how you prepare leaders to be adaptable, to think on their feet, to be trained in exercises that put them through unexpected situations, to deal with free play adversaries and some of their training programs that force them to do things that are dramatically different from what they have planned. The U.S. has always had a very strong advantage in terms of our human capital we've been able to apply in warfare, and we think it's time to double down on that, but change the way that we develop and educate those leaders. So ultimately, it's the economic system and the system of liberties that are, in some ways, ironically, the opposite of military culture that are the ultimate strength of U.S. military. Well, the people have always been the most important asset in the U.S. military, and we don't see that changing in the future. The technology is important, of course, but what's more important in a certain sense, and we look at this historically in the book, is when a conflict arises, you're stuck with the technologies you have, whether you guessed right and built the right ones or the wrong ones. And so people who are in charge of those fights, whether that's at the tactical level or up at the strategic level, need to think creatively under fire. That's why we called the book Adaptation Under Fire, to figure out new and creative ways to use the systems that they have, to lead their people to address challenges that they may not have faced before. And the human ability to do that, to be flexible, to think creatively under extraordinary pressure, and to come up with new ways of doing things under incredibly short timelines, we think is the most important attribute of an adaptable military. And that's why the recommendations in the book, some of which General Barno just mentioned, the recommendations are designed to improve the U.S. military as well. Dr. Nora Bensahel and retired Army Lieutenant General Dave Barno are authors of Adaptation Under Fire, How Militaries Change in Wartime. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. SMS text, 1118 AM. Hey, girl. Emergency. You wouldn't believe what just happened. Are you at your desk? I ripped my skirt and like half my tush is hanging out. Third floor bathroom, please help. LOL. When you send messages on SMS, someone else could be reading them. With end-to-end encryption, WhatsApp ensures that your personal messages are your personal messages. WhatsApp, always message privately. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.